Uh, I'm delighted to be with you. I, this whole weekend has been great. Um, I, am, I am a little embarrassed by that I intro. I think I need to rework it because it, it, it could sound impressive. And, um, well, maybe that's what I want, but it, it, so it sounds like I'm one of those bold evangelists who always, you know, can't not talk to people. Uh, for many years, I was on staff with Campus Crusade, and we had, we had many, many speakers who got up and always talked about how easy it was and how natural. And all of their stories uh, always were on airplanes. I, I don't know why that is. Airplanes are where evangelism has to happen, high up, close to heaven. I'm not really sure why, but... Um, I remember one guy saying that he always prayed when he got on a plane for the person who was going to sit next to him. And I just, I just felt so guilty, and now I, I still feel guilty every time I get on a plane because I, I, I pray for an empty seat. Um, <laughs> I, I have anxiety as I get on the plane because I think, oh, no, there's probably going to be people there. Um, so um, I, I, I think I've had a ministry that God has crafted um, for as, as an evangelistic chicken to help other evangelistic chickens um, share their faith. At least that's my hope and my prayer in this message. Uh, this was brought home to me pretty powerfully one time, not all that many years ago. I was riding the, the subway in Washington, D.C. We call it the Metro. And it was uh, during rush hours. The car was pretty crowded. I was sitting in a seat very close to the doors. Uh, I was on the aisle. There was people all around me. And uh, right as, as uh, we stopped at one place, um, the, the doors opened up, people came in. As soon as the doors closed and the train took off, a man who had just gotten in who was standing by the door announced aloud in a very loud voice, may I have your attention, please? And, and, and he got our attention because people don't do that on the metro. They don't, they don't make announcements. They, in fact, they don't talk at all, even to people they know. Um, they, we just they would read the Washington Post or, or very important government documents, and uh, we, there's no talking. And, um, and, and he got our attention because uh, this was at a time when uh, in the stations, in the subway stations, they have um, uh, charts about what the security level is. And it goes all the way from green up to red. Green has never existed in Washington, never. Um, but, but it had just recently, uh, um, red means um, move to Pennsylvania. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, it had just been raised from yellow to orange, and so everybody's kind of on edge, and this guy gets on, and may I have your attention, please? And, and then just to, just to make sure that we really had, he had our attention, the woman sitting right next to me, right across the aisle, started screaming, no, no, no. And it, I, I was thinking, have I paid my life insurance? Um, if I told my wife I love her, um, the man reached in his pocket, pulled out a book, and he started to sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, we all exhaled and rolled our eyes, went back to our Washington Post. Everybody except the woman sitting next to me who continued to scream, stop, shut up. This is the oddest duet I've ever heard. Everybody on the train was back and forth. Um, did, did you know that that hymn has four verses? Uh, um, when, the pl when the train uh, arrived at the next station, the doors opened. He stopped after the fourth verse. He said, have a nice day. He got off. The doors closed. We took off. And the woman sitting next to me, by this point, beat red, furious, just said, I have to put up with him every day. He does this every day. I have since walked everywhere in Washington now. I no longer take the metro. 
Uh, why do I tell that story? My guess is that there are a lot of people who think that's what evangelism is. There are Christians who think that's what evangelism is, and therefore I'm never doing it. And there are a whole lot of non-Christians who think that's what Christians do, and they'd rather tell us to shut up. And, and I, I want to say, I don't, I don't think uh, we could probably debate whether that's a good method of evangelism. I'm pretty sure that the vast majority of you will never do it. What I do think is that God has called all of us to be his witnesses and to tell people that we know and, and people that we don't know about this wonderful news. If you're a believer in Jesus, this is really great news, isn't it? It's amazing. We have forgiveness of sins. We have a personal connection with, with God himself. We have God's spirit living in us. It's wonderful. We want to tell people about this. But how do we do it in a world that might not want to hear it? And what I want to say by answer, quick answer, is with a whole lot of tension. I want to look at four tensions. I've called this message Tensions in Evangelism. And I want to look at a passage in the book of Colossians. Colossians 4, 2 through 6, I believe has four tensions for us um, that, uh, that we can live with if we're going to proclaim this good news. I see that Bibles are being handed out. So if you need a Bible, here we go. It'd be really cool if I knew what page Colossians 4, 2 through 6 was on. <laughs> but I don't. Um, it's, it's in the New Testament. It's on the kind of like toward the end of the book. And uh, look up the table of contents if you don't know where Colossians is. Um, I'll give you time. I'll stall. Um, I, I understand, by the way, that your church is doing a Bible study of Colossians on Tuesday nights. So um, uh, I didn't even know that when I, when I came. So I, I hope you'll uh, be able to make that. Colossians is a wonderful book about the supremacy of Christ. It's a book that argues, as all of the New Testament does, that Jesus is God. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a good guy. Um, he is God himself that took on human flesh and came and lived amongst us. Colossians chapter 1 has some of the loftiest language of all of Scripture about Jesus. Take a look. Oh, see, now, now I'm going to bother you because I said to turn to Colossians 4, but I'm going to go to Colossians 1. It's only going to get worse from here. I'm sorry. So... Colossians 1, look at verse 15, talking about Jesus. The text says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. Isn't that amazing? Those last two words may be some of the most stunning words in all of Scripture. Everything that exists exists for the purpose of bringing glory to Jesus. Um, th th this is so contrary to what most people think today. Most people think that Jesus was just a good teacher. That's exactly what I believed growing up in a Jewish home. We didn't hear much about Jesus. Every so often my dad used his name in probably ways that wouldn't be appreciated here. Um, but I thought Jesus was a rabbi, a good teacher, and it wasn't until uh, I met a group of Christians who really talked about knowing God in a deep and personal way. It was really attractive to me. They, they prayed all the time. They, they prayed in English, by the way. I thought that was an unfair advantage. I thought he only knew Hebrew. Um, and my Hebrew is uh, not so good. And so, uh, but, but they talked about God as, as this deep, intimate relationship that we had with him, and so they said it was all about Jesus. And so I read um, the New Testament. I read the gospel according to Matthew. I read books like Colossians that made me say, oh, wait a minute. He's either crazy or he's God. And it was at 20 years of age in my sophomore year in college, not far from here at Temple University, where I came to realize, yes, he's the one that I must trust 
for eternal life, for salvation, for forgiveness of sins. And Colossians chapter 1 is loaded with great truths that we can latch on to as we think deeply about Jesus. Chapter 2 of Colossians then talks about if we're in Him, all of the riches that we have now that we are Christians. Talks about us having our forgiveness of sins, our, our having all fullness in Him. It's a wonderful chapter of, of building a sense of all that God has done for us by dying on the cross for us. And then chapter 3 shifts and starts talking about here's how it starts making a difference in your life. It makes a difference in the way you think. It makes a difference in the way you think about everything. It makes a difference in how you think about yourself. It makes a difference in how you handle temptations for sin. And then it starts making a difference in other people's lives in, through you. The Christian faith is never an isolated thing that's only about me. It's about how I connect with other people. And it starts with having a difference in how I connect with other Christians. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, it's filled with, with statements about what a great fellowship we can have with other believers. Then it starts making a difference in our families, between husbands and wives, between uh, fathers and children. And then, finally, in chapter 4, it starts making a difference in how we connect with people who are outsiders, people of other faiths, of other worldviews. And here's what Paul says in chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Four tensions that I see in this passage that we need to live with if we're to understand how can we tell others about Jesus in a world that may not want to hear it. And the first tension or duality is prayer and proclamation. We pray and we also speak. We talk to God about people, then we talk to people about God. We pray with devotion, that's verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. And then, but, but almost without taking a, a, a breath, he then says, and pray that God would open up a door for our message. So we, we need to be involved in at least two conversations. One is with God, where we pray and we ask that God would work in people's lives, people that God has sovereignly placed in our lives, next door neighbors, coworkers, people that we know through social interactions, people who are not Christians, that God would work in their hearts and draw them to himself. You'll notice he says to devote yourselves to prayer, meaning you've, you've got to be consistent about it. You've, you've got to, in, um, another translation says, remain steadfast in prayer. So what does that tell you? Devote yourselves, remain steadfast. It must be easy to quit. <laughs> That's the one thing I've learned about prayer. Um, it's easy to lose heart. There are several uh, stories, parables that Jesus told us about people who kept on knocking on doors and kept on uh, imploring leaders for something. And it was, it, the text says that Jesus told us these stories so that we would not lose heart. It must be easy to lose heart in prayer, isn't it? I mean, there's something, we live in a, in a tangible world, in a physical body, but we're talking to an invisible God about things that we can't really measure. And it's easy to be tempted to think, oh, this is, I got other stuff to do. Um, so, so, but, but, and, and that's especially true if we're praying for non-Christians to come to faith. It's easy to lose heart. Some of us have been praying for people that we love and care for for decades. 
and it's easy to think, oh, I don't know if this is doing any good. He, he does give us a couple of encouragements. He tells us to be watchful and thankful. Do you see it there in verse 2? And so I, I think he's telling us we can be more likely to persevere in prayer and to, to uh, uh, be devoted to it if we're watchful and thankful. Watchful while we're praying, seeking to see what is the Lord showing us, reminding us, giving us insight about something. But after we pray and we go out into the world and live our lives, we watch to see how God may be working in answer of the prayer. And then thankful, when God does answer prayer, we give thanks for it. Um, and in fact, I, I really hope you have some kind of written journal or something where you pray, where you write people's names down and dates that you're praying and or things that you're praying for, and then write a date when God answers. Because I, I find that if I don't write stuff down, then, then I forget that I even prayed the prayer. If I write it down, I'm more likely to repeat it and keep remembering to pray it. And if I don't write it down, I forget that I even prayed it, and then I miss the fact that God, so very often God answers. But if we keep track of it, we can't say, oh, God never answers my prayer. Look, there, there, there. And that encourages me to keep praying on those places where I haven't written the answer down yet. So that's the prayer. There's also proclamation. Um, we need to have a conversation where we talk to people. By the way, when I'm praying for non-believers, um, uh, I, I very often pray for myself, too. Um, because if, if I'm praying for non-believers, I'm, I'm pretty sure God's going to answer. And then I'll probably have to say something. Uh, so I pray, Lord, would you, would you give me the wisdom, the boldness that I need when you answer the prayer in their life to make them hungry for the gospel so that I know how to connect them. Prayer and proclamation. I'll say more about words in the next point. The second tension is about words and deeds. It's both the words that we say and the actions that we live. I, I, I'm, I'm hoping you caught lots of things about words in this passage. It says that uh, we should be uh, praying for God to open up a door for our message. There are words there so that we may proclaim. You proclaim things with words. He says to be, uh, let your conversation always be full of grace. So conversation has to have words to it. But then there's also deeds. You see that? He also says that we should be... Uh, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. It's both our actions and our words. And, and that makes sense, right? I mean, if you, if you think about it, if it's all talk, but our actions, our lives don't back up the words we're saying, well, then people just dismiss us and say that we're a bunch of hypocrites. But if it's all actions, but no words, they may not connect our niceness to the specific words of the gospel. Sometimes people get into... Um, debates about which one's more important, the words or the deeds. Uh, I think that's kind of a silly debate. That's kind of like debating like uh, which wing of the airplane is, is more important. Um, when I get on planes, uh, I, w I want both wings. To, I mean, I already have the anxiety that there are people there, but I want the wings to be great. Can you imagine? I'm sorry, this is, I interrupt myself in my own sermons. Doesn't that cause you to pray? That makes you devoted to prayer. Lord, help them. We're going to be here all day. Um, I had this vision of getting on a plane and the pilot saying, we're very excited, ladies and gentlemen, the left wing is great. It's in pristine condition. The right wing, yeah, not so much. Anyway, sorry, that was a total interruption. You need a little break from the sermon. Back to the text. Uh, words and deeds. Um, sometimes there's this expression that people have. Um, it's a quote. Sometimes I've seen it on, on T-shirts. Um, Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Have you seen it? 
I'm, I'm not a big fan. Um, it's always necessary to use words. Or, or sooner or later, we've got to attach words to our actions. Otherwise, people will just think we're a vegetarian. Um, I probably just offended all the vegetarians. Sorry, I, I'm all in favor of vegetables, yay. But um, uh, there, there's got to be something more to our message than, okay, I, I, I'm in trouble. All those elders who you saw up here, they're going to clean up all the messes that I made uh, next week. Uh, pastor is going to have a sermon resolving all the problems I created. Um, uh, some people think that uh, Francis of Assisi was the one who said that quote, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. But um, I did some research. I really don't think it was Francis. He did say things like, make sure your actions back up your words. That's good. Yeah. And so we, we need some people close enough, close Christian brothers and sisters who will tell us when our actions are not in line with the gospel. Uh, by the way, you, you may know, um, in the book of Galatians, we find out that at one point, Paul had to rebuke Peter and say that he was not living in line with the gospel. Um, so, so we need people who will say, hey, wait a minute, there's something about the way you're living that's not in line with the truth of the gospel, and so your witness is damaged. We, we need both words and deeds lining up. Um, I, I want to press this because uh, people sometimes say, well, if, we, if, we're just, if we're just good neighbors, if we're just you know, good friends, people will see Jesus in us. I'm not so sure. Um, here, so I want to give you a thought experiment. Uh, imagine, imagine you have new neighbors who just moved into your neighborhood, and you want to greet them, and so you say, oh, let's bring them a plate of chocolate chip cookies. And so you do. You bring them a plate of chocolate chip cookies. Welcome to the neighborhood. We're so glad you're here. Um, if you need any help figuring out things, please let us know, and then you leave. Here's what will not happen. When you walk out the door, they will not look at the chocolate chip cookies and say, I know why they brought them to us. They must believe in a holy, righteous God who has a standard of perfect holiness, and yet he's also a loving, gracious father. And how that can be that he's both holy and loving, boy, that creates a certain tension, and it makes it even worse that they are created in God's image to know this God, and yet they've rebelled against them. They're sinful. And so there's this great gap. It's not as if God's arm is so short that he cannot save. No, their sins have made a separation between them and their God. But God, in his mercy, sent Jesus to die on the cross so that they can know him and have eternal life because he died as a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation. They won't say that no matter how good the cookies are. <laughs> I, I, I told this one place and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, so would you say that we should like slip uh, gospel tracks in between the cookies? <laughs> Maybe. Um, uh, let's keep brainstorming. Uh, I, think, uh, I, I don't think we have to be saying the words all the time, but we need to know that sooner or later words are, must be said so that people hear this wonderful but counterintuitive message that God sent his son to die for sinners. So, needs to be both words and deeds. Um, third, there's this tension of grace and salt. Do you see it there in verse 6? Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Well, if our conversation is full of grace, it's, it's nice, it's, it's good news, it's respectful, it's... Um, uh, the kind of speech that would make people want to hear more from us. By the way, this is getting harder and harder in our world, isn't it? Um, and this isn't just because I live right outside Washington. Everywhere I go, there's, there's less and less 
gracious speech and more and more sarcasm and insult and uh, disrespect in our conversations. Even with people who we disagree with strongly, we need to remember they're creating the image of God and they are worthy of dignity and respect. And so our conversation needs to be full of grace. Um, but it also needs to be seasoned with salt. And there's a lot of discussion about what that could mean. You, you know, salt makes you thirsty. Salt makes you want to hear more. And so we need to find ways to talk to people so that they want to hear more. That there's something about what we say that seems different or surprising or counterintuitive that they go, hmm, wait, 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 what is that? I, wait, wait, could you say that again? We've got to find ways to, to say things to people. Because um, so many people in our culture in particular think they've already heard the whole Jesus thing. They've heard that religious stuff and they've rejected it. And so we need to find ways to say things that might not be exactly what they expected. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, when, uh, I've benefited a lot from reading and listening to the teaching of uh, Tim Keller, uh, pastor in uh, New York City. Um, he and his wife moved to New York City from Pennsylvania, not all that far from here, uh, 30 years ago to start a church in Manhattan. And when they first arrived in New York, lots of people asked them, what kind of church are you guys going to be starting? Because they told people they were starting a new church. And there are lots of churches in New York City. And so people asked, are, are you going to be one of those um, hellfire churches? Are you going to be one of those churches always talking about going to hell and, and burning fire in hell? And um, Keller faced a difficult challenge because he, he does believe those verses in the Bible about hell and fire. And, and, he, and he didn't want to compromise that because the, the, the most uh, uh, profound statements about hell are made by Jesus. So, um, but, he didn't, but he didn't want to just go, yep, we're one of those hellfire churches because that would end the conversation. So he wanted to figure out, how, how do I say it so that people say, oh, wait a minute, I want to hear more. And so when people, he, he came up with this answer, when people asked about, are you one of those churches talking about fire and hell? He said, well, you know, I think, I think those verses about fire, um, we, we might be able to interpret them as like a kind of metaphor. And they would go, oh, good, you're not one of those crazy fundamentalists. And then he would say, and, and if it is a metaphor, it's a metaphor for something far worse than fire. What? Are you, like, what do you mean? Well, total separation from God and all of his goodness for all eternity. I, I think fire doesn't even begin to get to how bad that is. And so his conversations were improved because he chose to try to find ways to say that was both grace and salt. Let me, let me share a personal experience. Um, I've, I've reached the stage in life now where I get to do a lot of witnessing to people in the medical fields. Oh, good. It took a little while. Okay. The earlier service got that quicker. So just saying. Uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> so yes, I, I have to see a lot of doctors. And uh, several years ago, <clears throat> I had a lot of pain in my back. And we tried all sorts of different things and physical therapy and nothing was working. I eventually had to have surgery, which did solve the problem. Thanks be to God. But before the surgery, they wanted to try to avoid that, and they came up with this idea that I need to get three injections in my spine. Yes, that's horrible. You should be horrified. I'm horrified just retelling it, and I survived it, obviously. Um, so um, three, three injections, one, and then two weeks later, another one, two weeks later, another one. You get these three, and it's supposed to solve, take away the pain. It did for a month, and then the pain came back. And you go and you see the same doctor and nurse for all three of these things, and um, 
And so I'm just scared, stiff, and nervous. They give you a pillow to hold and to hunch over, and a nurse stands over here with her hand on your shoulder saying, you'll be okay, to which I want to say, how do you know? Um, but, um, and the doctor's behind you preparing the site, that's what they call it. And um, you know, doctors like to ask you questions to answer right as they're about to do something painful. Do you know this? Um, they call it uh, speech anesthesia. <laughs> it doesn't work. And so... Um, so uh, Mr. Newman, and then, and then he you know, asked, what do you do for a living? And at the time, I worked for a group called Campus Crusade. <laughs> Crusade, that's a great topic starter while someone's about to stick something in you. Um, well, I'm in campus ministry. Oh, that's fascinating. I thought, no, it really isn't. And, um, and so each time, they're asking more and more questions about what I do and you know, trying to distract me from the pain. It never worked. And then on the last time, the third time, so by now they think I'm calm and relaxed. <laughs> Not even close. And, um, and, and so, um, so the doctor starts saying, you know, when I was in high school, this friend of mine invited me to a church, and uh, all they talked about was hell. If you danced, you were going to go to hell. If you drank, you were going to go to hell. If you smoked, you were going to go to hell. And then the nurse chimes in with, oh, yeah, I went to one of those churches. I think that's ridiculous. And then the doctor says, Mr. Newman, what do you think about that? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly what I thought. I thought, not now. I don't really want to be talking about Jesus. I, I don't want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk to Jesus. Jesus, keep me alive. So I, I squeaked out something like, I, 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 I think I'd like to talk about this after you're finished. I'm just a little preoccupied. And then I, oh, oh, yes, like I'm reminding him what he's supposed to be paying attention to. Sorry to interrupt you, but like... Um, so, so, I, so I bought myself some time because I didn't know what I was going to say. And I, I, I started praying and I'm thinking, well, what am I going to say? This, these two people think my religion is just a bunch of stupid rules. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And, and I thought, I, I bet that's what a whole lot of people think. I bet that's what people think about our, our religion. And so when, I was, when they were all finished, and they, they have to stay in the room for 10 or 15 minutes to make sure that you don't die. And... Um, so they brought it up again. So, Mr. Newman, what do you think about all those rules? And uh, so I gave. So, since I had been thinking about it, I said, "Well, you know, I think um, I think we like those rules because if we keep them, we feel really good about ourselves. And if um, we know people who don't keep them, then we can feel really bad about them, which makes us feel good about ourselves in a pretty sick kind of way." And then I said, but you know, the, the stuff I need forgiveness for is a whole lot worse than the things that are usually on those lists. Things I need forgiveness for are, are uh, anger and hatred and bitterness and judgmentalism. And, and their eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And I'm thinking, I'm just getting started. <laughs> oh, it's a whole lot worse. It is a whole lot worse, isn't it? If we're really honest. See, it's, it's not just the stuff we do. It's the attitudes behind that. It's the I worship me. It's the idolatry in my life that makes me do things that are, might or might not be on those lists. It's, it's sin that is so horrible it needs a cross. Um, my sin, your sin, is so bad that nothing short of the death of the Son of God could pay for sin that bad. And, and that, that's the wonder of the gospel is that that's, that's exactly what we have. 
So I said to this doctor and nurse, I, I said, that's what I love about Christianity is I, I have forgiveness for that kind of stuff and worse. And I, I don't know really all that they thought, but I, I have to think I, that was my attempt to be both grace and salt, both, both bad news and good news. Um, the bad news of our message is far worse than people think it is, but the, the good news is far better than we often express. So it's prayer and proclamation, it's words and deeds, it's grace and salt, one more pairing. Um, there's the tension, the duality of reception and rejection. Reception, some people receive this, rejection, some people say, oh, please stop talking. Um, some people believe it, and it's the best news they could have ever heard. Some people reject it, and they don't want anything to do with it. Um, uh, the, the, the idea of reception is not exactly in the verses that I read in Colossians 4, but it's all in the whole entire book of Colossians. We wouldn't have a book of Colossians if there weren't people who received the message. And Paul reminds them of that back in the, the first chapter. He says, all over the world, this gospel is producing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and you understood God's grace in all its truth. And he rehearses and reminds them of how Epaphras brought the message and they responded. So we wouldn't even have a book of Colossians if there weren't some people who received the message. And by the way, that culture then, Colossians, that um, they were no more likely to believe in Jesus than our world today. If you study the book of Colossians and you study the things they believed in that city, in that area, it's very similar to our secular post-truth uh, 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 post culture that we have today. And so there's reception, but there's also rejection. Did you notice just in passing in this, in this passage in, in chapter 4, Paul talks about our message, the mystery of Christ, and then he adds, for which I am in chains. Paul was in prison for preaching this message. Paul went to prison several times. In fact, we know that he was eventually executed in prison for preaching the gospel. Everywhere this gospel has gone in the history of the world, some people receive it, some people try to kill the people who are speaking it. Everywhere Paul went, some people believed, they planted churches, they started growing, they appointed elders, they started having great ministry. Other people tried to kill Paul. No surprise, right? Everywhere Jesus went, he got that same kind of response, correct? Some people said he's the Messiah. Some people said he's demon-possessed. So we who are followers of this crucified and risen Savior shouldn't be surprised if some people receive it and some people reject it. And we just need to prepare ourselves for the exact same words, same booklet, same quote of a Bible verse can uh, get such very, very different responses. Don't let the rejections discourage you. Um, but here's some great news. There are a whole lot of people, my guess is perhaps even some of you here today, there are a whole lot of people who reject and reject and reject and reject for a very long period of time, and then they receive it. Um, my father came to faith at age 86 after my younger brother and I had been trying to talk to him for 30 plus years. Um, there are people who say, no, 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 and then circumstances change or just the reality of the fact that they're getting older or something happens in their life that's, that's a, a major crisis or something, and suddenly those who have said no are open 
Here's one of my favorite stories. Um, I, I interview a whole lot of people to hear about how they came to faith or how they have shared their faith, and I love hearing the stories. And there was one woman who told me that she became a Christian when she was in high school. She was only 16 years old. She went to a church youth group thing. She heard this wonderful message about the gospel, and she believed, and she received it. Came home and told her parents they wanted nothing to do with it. Her parents were not religious or believers of any kind. But she tried to talk to them for decades and decades and decades. Um, then when her father was uh, in his 80s, he was alone. He was in a retirement community. He really didn't like to connect with a lot of people. He was sort of a recluse. Um, but there were some Christians who moved into the community and started inviting him to church. Every Sunday they invited him to church. No, 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 I don't do that. My daughter, she's religious. I don't do that kind of stuff. But they kept inviting him, kept inviting him. Finally, they invited him on Easter. He figured, okay, all right, Easter, if you're going to go to church, that's probably the day to go, you know. And he goes, and, he, and he, he hears a sermon about the resurrection of Jesus. Imagine that on Easter. And, um, <laughs> and, and he hears that Jesus rose from the dead, and it's not just that he rose from the dead, but he died to pay for people's sins, and his resurrection shows that that payment really was valid. And he became convinced that this really was true and that he needed to embrace it and believe it, and he became a Christian that day. Called his daughter that afternoon. You know what he said to her? He never told me he rose from the dead. <laughs> if you would have told me that, could have saved a whole lot of time and trouble. <laughs> she told me, oh, of course I told him about the resurrection. I sent him books about that. So he just was closed. He didn't have ears to hear, but then he did. So I want to encourage you, pray and ask God to work and then say words and make sure that your actions back up your words. Try to ask God for wisdom about grace and salt and, and don't give up and don't stop telling people because you never know. Some people may say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the people that you place around us who don't know you. Um, would you work in their lives to make this gospel message irresistible? And would you work in our lives to give us compassion for them so that we care deeply about them? And would you give us wisdom about what to say and how to say it and what not to say? And uh, Father, if there's anyone here today who hasn't become a Christian yet, but here they are at church, may, may today be the day that they cross that line. May today be the day that you give them the answers they need, the, the conviction that they can't save themselves. Um, may it be that this year at Thanksgiving, uh, when people say, what are you thankful for? They will say, I'm thankful that this year I became a Christian. Uh, we ask that you would use us for the proclaiming of this good news. We ask that you would use this church for the pro proclaiming of this good news in this community and other parts of the world. Um, would you bless our efforts in ways that only you can do so that more and more will gather around and worship Jesus? For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. May God bless you as you go into the world.